Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. All right, we are back. Welcome to Take It Away, the complete Solo Beatles podcast. Oh, that felt nice. That felt nice hearing you say that, Chris. Yeah, I'm Chris Mercer, and I'm here with Paul Kaminsky, as usual. Hey, Paul. I'm back. We're excited. We came up with this idea we were talking before the call, Chris, quite a long time ago, and it's really gratifying to see it finally taking shape. Well, I think when you suggested this idea that we spend an episode on Beetle George, that probably put us back about three months because I got real intimidated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think I was ready to dive in and then it's like, oh, we're talking about Beatles. I know. Yikes. (laughs) You know, but I think we're taking an approach here that acknowledges all that has been said and written already about Beatles songs and Beatles records. And so before we dive into George's solo work, we thought it would be great to, since there's not a lot of Beatle George to talk about in the first place, hey, let's cover it. Yeah, the idea that you and I spoke about was, should the show go on? And if so, we'll have to branch out to a different one of the lads, basically, because you had covered Paul so comprehensively. So the choice was then, well, who do you go to? And it's interesting, when I was talking to Annabelle Jones, uh, Ryan's wife, her first question was, why wouldn't you do John Lennon? That seems like the logical move. And without thinking, and I think you and I were on mostly the same page when it came to this, without thinking, I just sort of said, well, not many people are talking about George in that way. Mm. And George interests me infinitely. Um, I love his solo work. I love his work in the Beatles. I love George's outlook on life. I love George's humor. The George story is one of somebody who had a kind of a chip on his shoulder and worked it out through his own talents and his own deeds and um, a vision in a way that is just endlessly fascinating to me. And so, yeah, it's nothing against John Lennon's music. I could talk about John Lennon's. I could talk about any four of the Beatles forever. I think you discouraged me from uh, saying we should do Ringo first. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about it another time, Paul. <laughs> well, let me tell you, I could talk for about three hours on Ringo Bad Boy Star. But um, but no, with George, I don't know. It just seemed like, no, that's the one to do. In fact, I'm wearing my George Harrison shirt right now. And I um, made a playlist of all of the Beatle George songs and listened to it straight through just every last one of them. And yeah. it makes quite an interesting double album, <laughs> yeah. But a distinct double album. It it ver- it sounds very consistent, consistently George. And it's interesting to hear them plucked out of their Lennon and McCartney cradles. George's solo albums were definitely a part of the first leg of my Beatles journey back in fifth, sixth grade, and so. I know them from way back, some of them from way back. I had a second 
George era that came much later in graduate school when I went ahead and finally actually got all his albums. So I had these two periods of discovery with George. And so we're talking 90s. I'm kind of rediscovering and also for the first time discovering George's solo albums. And my reaction to hearing 33 and a third or extra texture, something like that for the first time was pretty much like, where the hell have these albums been for the last 20 years of my life? This stuff's great. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But just like the case was in the Beatles, it often, not always, but it often went overlooked or at least overlooked in the shadow of John and Paul, which is really the part and parcel of the story of George Harrison. When you're in a band with two of the greatest songwriters, at least pop songwriters in modern history, that's a pretty big lesson in songwriting. It's a big lesson. And it's also a pretty big uh, intimidating hurdle, just as you were intimidated to talk Beatles. <laughs> you know, imagine <laughs> bringing a song to Lennon and McCartney. You know, as yeah, George says, yeah. like, and we read a lot of books and things in preparing for this, but, it, you know, George is quoted as saying, you know, like, John and Paul had been writing since whatever it was, 58, and they'd already gotten all of their bad songs out. <laughs> yeah. But George didn't really start writing till about 63. And so he was getting all of his quote unquote bad songs out in front of Lennon and McCartney. And that really set a tone for the yeah. rest of their recording career. And it's it's unfortunate because instead of focusing on George and trying to, you know, help develop him as a songwriter, even though there was some of that, the framing of George instead became Beatle Baby Brother. Yeah. And he was treated as such. And anybody who was in that who would be in that position would have a chip on their shoulder, I think, ultimately about it. The original double edged sword, right? He's in this situation where he's going to be a much more advanced songwriter, intellectual musician than he would ever have been had he not been in the Beatles. Right. On the other hand, his growth is being stymied by the fact that he's in the Beatles. Yeah, Randy Bachman wrote an album about George. I think it was a whole album. But the the title song of his George tribute album was called Between Two Mountains, (laughs) as, Mm -hmm. you know, Lennon McCartney representing the two mountains. And it's an interesting take on it. But uh, yeah. but I discovered George's solo material like I discovered all the rest of the Beatles material growing up. Um, it was inescapable with my dad. Although, when I got out of college and I was working on my own and living on my own for the first time, um, I really discovered the Dark Horse album. And that album is not particularly kindly looked on by many fans, but to me, as a guy in his early 20s who was single kind of depressed, who was kind of drinking a lot. Um, that album really spoke to me. And there's a song on that album. Well, you know, we'll get to all these albums, but of all of George's material, you know, I don't think there's been a post Beatles song that's affected me as deeply as the song So Sad. Hmm. And that's amazing because I, like you, am a McCartney person and love Paul <laughs> McCartney and all of that and John Lennon, all of this. But it was when I heard a George solo song specifically so sad, I never felt anything resonate in my soul so deeply. Mm. Um, and it was, it really bonded me to the music in a, in a way that was outside of my family structure, which is very Beatle oriented, but it, it kind of let me attach my own identity, my own fandom to George. 
Well, one of the reasons I stopped a little short as a kid with George Harrison was that it was, as I've discussed on the show before, it was the 80s and I was in small town North Carolina and just access to albums like mid-70s George Harrison albums, yeah, they just weren't anywhere to be found in the local, local meaning, I don't know, 100 mile radius yeah. <laughs> of, of where I lived. You, you really couldn't find his albums that easily. So I got the ones that were more common, either more recent or of course, All Things Must Pass. But living in the material world, Dark Horse, as I said before, Extra Texture and 33 and a Third were new to me in grad school, which is just crazy. It's the 90s and I'm in my 20s, but these are brand new albums. And I was listening to them at the time in the context of not how do they stand up to the Beatles, not how do they stand up to John and Paul's solo albums, but how are they as 70s pop? Yeah. They are top-notch 70s pop. Crackerbox Palace. I mean, there's so many beautiful tracks on all of those. Um, yeah, he had that year for commerciality. It's been said that the George sound is kind of the Beatles sound. When you hear George solo stuff, often it sounds more beatle than any of the solo material from Paul, John, or Ringo. Hmm. I don't know. I think it's... Um, Some of the least beatle too, though. I mean, I'm thinking about somewhere in England and how... Like it sounds nothing like what John or Paul were doing in the seventies and early eighties. That's know? true, but all those years ago, I would oh, say well, yeah. sounds very beatly. I mean, maybe perhaps purposefully, but Yeah, right. There there are songs I don't know, I think George was capable. Like Blood of from it. a Clone is the one, <laughs> I the one I'm thinking of that can I tell you, this is a tangent. I was on, um, my dad was making this Beatles special he does, uh, which we turned into a podcast, and um, he's been making this since I was a, a young lad. And he got up to, I, th- I must have been 16, where we got up to that album and Blood from a Clone, and we were playtesting an episode in the car on the way up to some family gathering with my mom and my brother also in the car. And when Blood from a Clone came on, my mom looked at him and go, what is this? <laughs> she looked at him like, I've dealt with a lot of Beatles because of you, but I don't understand this. <laughs> Now, that was a sixth grade discovery for me, that album and that song. I loved that song. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, a, fantastic. it's an awesome fuck you to the music business. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, you know, George's material of like, we talk about, oh, he was between two mountains. You know, he, he, he was, had Lennon McCartney to live up to. But it's George that gets the first post-Beatles number one. And it's George to get the final Post Beatles number one single. Oh. He bookmarks the commercial success of the former Fabs in that way and was kind of king shit in the late 80s. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing too because he spent so much time being shit on by Rolling Stone and all these other places. So it's kind of wonderful that he got that vindication and no wonder he walked away. When he did, you know, he walked away with them begging for more. Oh, Rolling Stone. Boy, I was just bitterly thinking about them this morning. You know, I, <laughs> I don't... Fucking Rolling Stone critics, especially of the 70s and 80s. I know. I mean, that's that line from... Uh... <laughs> what a plague on the culture they were. 
<laughs> but that's the line from this guitar, right? Can't even climb Rolling Stone walls. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah, you know, it's, I, but yeah, well, don't get me started, but yeah. So anyway, George has that dichotomy about him. He is at one time, the unnoticed one at one time, the, you know, the overlooked one, but at the same time, he's the post Beatles success story. You know, he's, <laughs> he has all of this wonderful, innovative success, whether it be founding the modern day tribute concert with Bangladesh or basically bankrolling Monty Python and turning that into a movie studio or all these different wonderful, interesting things, basically creating the genre of world music, air quotes. Right. I mean, that's all George, you know? It just sucks that he had to live up to people who were just a little bit ahead. (laughs) Well, yeah, this notion, too, of his apprenticeship happening there with the Beatles. You know, I think uh, probably not the only songwriter in the world who would say this, like, I don't have a first song. Like I was just thinking of stuff and thinking of stuff. And at some point there were songs that actually existed. The idea that George has like his first song, his like George Harrison songwriter proof of concept song. Right. (laughs) And it's on a Beatles album. It's it's just so fucking weird. The most successful, like fucking debut Beatle album. (laughs) Yeah. But well, let's do that. So, so you know, John and Paul could have brought him into the fold. You know, it could have been Lennon McCartney Harrison, but it wasn't. However, there is a Lennon McCartney Harrison credit on a song that is pre sort of LP Beatles called "Cry for a Shadow," which is an instrumental, which they did give George credit on. not sure if at the time or if that was an anthology edition when they you know finally put cry for a shadow out in an official capacity but when you listen to cry for a shadow that is a lennon mccartney harrison co-write and george at that time you know in the especially in the early early days when the beatles were in hamburg basically learning their craft had to learn how to serve the song There's a quote from George that says, I tried to keep it simple. And simplicity, you know, that's something you have to work at. I listen to some of the things now and think I could have played a lot more stuff there, but I'm glad I didn't, like on Don't Be Cruel. So he learned a lot from the people who were around him, the people who the Beatles were playing with in Hamburg, about how to support the song, how to structure a solo, how to help build the shape of a song with his guitar tone because unlike Lennon and McCartney there seemed to be a fixation on the guitar as an instrument there seemed to be an instrument fixation with George with Lennon and McCartney it was more of the idolatry of the rock stars or the you know the interest in the shape of a pop song but for some reason George I think gravitated to guitar specifically as a concept in anthology, there's that great quote where he says that something about like he has all his old school notes and he had been doodling little guitars on his school notes, and I think that kind of helps sum it up. Since she's been gone, I want one to talk to me. It's not the same, but I'm to blame. It's plain to see. So go away, leave me alone, don't bother me. I can't believe that she would leave me on my own It's just alright when every night I'm all alone 
got no time for you right now. Don't bother me. So we get to Don't Bother Me. And it's the first of a number of very grumpy songs from George Harrison. Don't Bother Me, Think For Yourself. It's sort of like, don't bother me, okay? Think for yourself. If I need someone, I'll let you know. <laughs> Stop taxing me so much. Uh, <laughs> you know, pretty grumpy here in the early songs. Now, what do you have a, a memory of hearing Don't Bother Me? Like when you were first listening to With the Beatles or Meet the Beatles, depending on your, you know, continental occupation do you have a a feeling of hearing that song and thinking like this is different than the other ones or did it feel more cohesive to you it sounded like a song on that album it did yeah and you know we'd heard his voice you know we knew to expect his singing voice on occasion yeah it didn't stand out to me i mean it didn't stand out as a great song but it didn't stand out as out of place either see i had a feeling that it stood out to me when i listen to like my first exposure to that stuff, you know, outside of my dad was I had tapes of all the Capitol releases. So I had a tape of meet the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking forward to that song. I don't know. Cause it was yeah. something like, um, edgy about it a little. Mm. And it's, it's also very hooky. I think it's a strong track on that record, especially, you know, put next to like some of my favorite, tracks on that like little child that one like there's something kind of hooky and edgy and mysterious about it mm. but i remember really liking don't bother me and as it turns out that was the first song that george harrison ever wrote yeah uh via his book i me mine the first song that i wrote as an exercise to see if i could write a song I wrote, can you imagine? That was an exercise. Proof of concept. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote in a hotel in Bournemouth, England, where we were playing a summer session in 1963. I was sick in bed. Maybe that's why it turned out Don't Bother Me. I don't think it's a particularly good song. It mightn't be a song at all. But it showed me that all I needed to do was keep on writing, and then maybe eventually I would write something good. I still feel now I wish I could write something good. It's relativity. (laughs) It did, however, provide me with an occupation. And there's another quote, which I don't have written down, but it's from I Me Mine, his memoir, that basically said to the effect of like, well, look, I don't know if I can write songs, but if goobers like John and Paul can write songs... then I should be able to write a song, which is an interesting (laughs) approach to it, really. (laughs) He didn't use the phrase goober, but basically saying like, yeah, if these two fucking chuckleheads can write, then I can definitely write, you know? Don't bother me, this is the remake, we're calling it Take 10. Since she's been gone, I want no one to talk to me. It's not the same, but I'm to blame, it's plain to see So go away, leave me alone, don't bother me I can't believe that she would leave me on my own It's just not right when every night I'm all alone I've got no time for you right now, don't bother me I know I'll never be I like that. I was sick in bed. Maybe that's why it turned out, don't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> well, then that brings us to um, his second attempt, I guess. I don't know if it was his second attempt or simply the second one put to record, but um, 
Actually, I don't think it was ever put to record. It was a demo called You Know What to Do. Maybe we'll play a little bit of it here. When I see you, I just don't know what to say. I like to be with you every hour of the day. So if you want me, just like I need you. I tell you, this one is, um, it's a little sparse. It looks like the Beatles didn't quite know what to go do with it. And, you know, to their credit, they could have simply laughed at George and not included any of his songs. But I'm happy that they decided to at least take cracks at them, you know, because... Oh, sure, yeah. I think they correctly intuited that George George had potential in that regard. Like, they gave him Happy Just to Dance with You, Lennon McCartney did. Do you want to know a secret on Please Please Me? And, you know, that's the kind of thing where I think they intuited that, you know, he is a vocalist, an emerging vocalist, but he's, you know, a vocalist. And I think it's in that Lennon Remembers interview where John is talking very sort of derogatorily about George, saying like, well, yeah, when we first started, he didn't even sing. And, you know, they're asking him about all things must pass. And he's like, yeah, that's fine if you like that sort of thing. I'm like, holy shit, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we like that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I'm happy that they gave him the shot. And I don't know if it was up to Lennon, maybe they wouldn't have. But mm-hmm. I have a feeling a lot of that fell on Paul because I, we know George Martin kind of didn't really take an active interest in George's music either. Right. Well, as far as just laughing at him and not including his songs, though, there's a certain amount of intra-band diplomacy <laughs> that has to go on, sure. right? And so, yeah, you have to give it a shot, you know? Yeah. But still, when we get to help, we have two George Harrison songs. Yeah. And good ones, at least catchy ones, fun songs. One that made it to the film. And it, it strikes me when I hear these two songs, You Like Me Too Much and I Need You, it's as if the... I'm happy just to dance with you character from a hard day's night. Sure. Wrote two songs of his own. <laughs> it's that same kind of innocent teen love kind of vibe that you get from these songs, you know? Which he dwells on and it strikes me as almost disingenuous. Like we were talking before the call about Paul McCartney singing about God and how it seems weird and out of place. Like for George to sing about, you know, the teenage stuff almost reads as weird or out of place to me. I don't know if you got that impression. He doesn't really do it again, right? It's just on help. Yeah. It's just these two songs. He's pretty much moving on to some heavy stuff. Right, right. And I think it's part of his exercise, you know, in trying to write like like John and Paul did, you know? Right. They're moving on to more sophisticated subject matter, but he's still stuck a year behind or something. Which is funny because like George is talking about some deeper shit than John and Paul were talking about. Look at the title, You Like Me Too Much. I mean, that's, that's, that, I'm sorry. That's, I've been swearing a lot this episode. I don't mean to, that's fucked up. Like there's, there's something that's kind of like really, I don't know, beautifully arrogant about that. And I like you. That's yeah, and very... I like you. 
you've gone away this morning, you'll be back again tonight, telling me there'll be no next time if I just don't treat you right. You'll never leave me. And you know it's true. Because you like me too much. And it's so aggressive. You're it's right. so it aggro. sounds like, uh, like innocent teen love, but it's a bit run for your life, yeah. actually. <laughs> it's, it's a whole lot run for your life. In fact, it feels more real than run for your life. Because when Lennon's singing about, I'm going to fucking kill you, I'm like, well, I don't know if you're going to do that. But George singing the way he does, I'm like, I think you definitely talk that way to Patty. Jesus Christ. Though you've gone away this morning, you'll be back again tonight Telling me there'll be no next time if I just don't treat you right You'll never leave me and you know it's true Cause you like me too much and I like you tried before to leave me but you haven't got the nerve to walk out and make me lonely which is all that I deserve you'll never leave me and you know it's true cause you like me too much and I like you I really do and it's nice when you believe me If you leave me, I will follow you and bring you back where you belong Cause I couldn't really stand it, I'd admit that I was wrong I wouldn't let you leave me cause it's true Cause you like me too much and I like you And yet the song is just bubblegum pop, you know, know. musically it's... Irresistible. I really do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's nice when you believe me. <laughs> Holy shit, dude. Anyway. Yeah, you raise a good point. And yeah. then I Need You is one of the most gorgeous Beatles songs ever written. I mean, I, I, I don't know how you feel about it, but I mean, that song is just so beautiful to me. I need you. But when you told me You don't want my loving anymore That's when it hurt me I'm feeling like this I just can't go on anymore Please remember how I feel about you I could never really live without you So come on back and see Just what you mean to me I need you I need you I need you Well, the album Help was along with a lot of the early Beatles stuff, it was a huge revelation to me. I had gotten to know some early Beatles in fifth and sixth grade. Then in uh, eighth and ninth grade, the Beatles CDs came out. This was 87, 88. And so for a lot of us, this is the first time we had heard them in their original form. So the album helped in particular. With that dreadful stereo. Yeah, there's some weird (laughs) stereo. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, I was noticing as I was reviewing these songs, how much more I like the mono version of Help 
actually, which I did not grow up with the mono version of Help. It was the first four Beatles albums when the CDs came out that were presented in mono. And then starting with Help, they were stereo. And yet hearing the 2009 mono remaster of Help, it's much more satisfying. Listen. Oh, the remasters are great. Well, but I mean, the mono is better than the stereo. Sure, sure. I'm just Oh, sure. Yeah, the 2009s are better than the 87s all around, but I had never heard a mono Help before. And yet I finally listened to it and thought, wow, this is better. I never really used to be able to even detect that stuff, but I remember as a kid listening to those early Beatle albums in headphones and going, why is this panning so strict? I mean, it felt, I don't know, it just seemed so detached. Well, the Beatles, you know, didn't work on the stereo mixes until, what, the White Album? Yes. Even through Sgt. Pepper, they worked on the mono mixes and the stereo mixes were an afterthought. But back to your point about I Need You, this was one of the discoveries for me, hearing help for the first time and whenever it was, eighth grade, ninth grade. And I didn't know George had such amazing songs so early on. Yeah. That's a beautiful song. It's a beautiful record, too, with the faded up guitar. The Yeah. It's so cool. (laughs) Great sequence in the film, too. Yeah, the film the film is god awful, but oh uh, come uh, just now, unwatchable. But I do hey. like the little I do like the little music videos. Don't pick but the rest hell. of the movies unwatchable. Come uh, on, oh no, unwatchable. I didn't grow up with it, so <laughs> I watch it, and it's just the worst movie in the universe, oh, except my. for all the awesome little Beatles music videos. Those are great. Well, you and I are going to fight about this later, I think. I sing. No, there's no childhood magic on that one for me. It's just, to me, it's just a terrible 60s movie. <laughs> hard, hey, hard disagree. Hard disagree. Hard Day's Night, I'm, I'm down with that. Uh, yeah. I don't know why I think it's cooler. Maybe it's just the lack of a silly plot. talk about a lot of this in that Scorsese documentary about him that he had this really it's called complicated relationship with women uh, and I think Paul has a great quote it's like he's a real you know red-blooded boy who liked his ladies um, <laughs> but when you hear George songs especially when he's singing romantically and I hear some of this in Jack White stuff too I mean there is a, uh, a frustration there's a real not adversarial stance that he takes but he takes a very firm stance when it comes to romance. It's not Paul, who's very soft. He calls women friends a lot in his songs. Hmm. Or John, who, you know, when he's not singing about beating them or whatever, um, you know, I don't know. There's something a, a little middle of the road when it comes to his stuff until you get to sort of the Yoko era. But with George, it's interesting. It's very early on. It's very... He's almost saying you have to work for me a little. Um, it's it seems a little sexual. George's romantic song content. I don't know if you got that sense as well. Maybe it's just me. I, I get the slightly bossy quality of it, or the demanding quality of it. I should say the sort of on my terms right quality of it. Yeah, right. You like me too much, but I like you. <laughs> <laughs> I need you. Need. It's an interesting choice of words. I've got a word or two to say about the things that you do. You're telling all those lies about the good things that we can have if we close our eyes. Ooh. 
brings us to the Rubber Soul era that you were talking about earlier, and Think for Yourself. It's a great track. And I Mean Mine, George wrote of Think for Yourself. This song must be about somebody, from the sound of it. <laughs> but all this time later, I don't quite recall who inspired that tune. Probably the government, um, which is true. <laughs> And thus enters George's quasi-political <laughs> songs. It's a really strong track. I mean, especially on Rubber Soul, it, it jumps out on that album. In his songs overall, there's this thing he does where he really likes to turn up the gain all the way on some stuff and really get like some hard, compressed, really loud, abrasive sounds to communicate a point. And this is one of those tracks. He also does it on Savoy Truffle. But on this one, you get that boom, and it just launches right into it. And it's it's hard to forget this track. I mean, it's an excellent rocker. Yeah, it's got a lot of that mid-60s Bob Dylan attitude on it, which, of course, Rubber Soul generally sort of does. But in a way, the stance that the speaker of the song is taking, there's a, a finger-pointing quality yeah. <laughs> that reminds me a bit of at least the mood from Bob Dylan at the time. I mean, good luck making sense of the actual lyrics from <laughs> Bob Dylan's songs at the time. But the mood is anti-authoritarian yeah, and kind of pointing out hypocrisy and... So I definitely sense that Dylan influence coming in here. Of course, we can't not mention the fuzz bass on this track. Pretty awesome. Paul crushes it. And this is still at a place where Lennon is showing up for George songs. Um, So you get that gorgeous three-part harmony, too. Yeah. I wonder if the fuzz bass, it's sort of like, well, it's George's song. This is a good excuse to try some shit. <laughs> That's what we heard in Get Back, didn't we? When yeah. Lennon was talking to McCartney and saying, like, yeah, when it comes to my songs, that's when we do all the experimenting. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's right. He does say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, McCartney was supportive of George. I mean, McCartney brought George into the fold. You know, when George died, he called him his baby brother. And I, I think for better or for worse, he thought of him like that till the day he died. But mm-hmm. there's a an enthusiasm about McCartney's participation in George songs. All you have to do is listen to the baseline on whatever, something to hear that. But Mm, I think McCartney was excited to work on George songs. I think he was excited that George was writing something good. Well, it goes against the vibe we were getting from Get Back, but Paul was insisting during Get Back, hey, I try to encourage you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where you're getting getting this from. It always sounds like I'm annoying you. Yeah. Yeah. That beautiful line where George says, well, you used to annoy me, but you don't anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Which brings us to, uh, if I needed someone, another really pretty tune, although does sound a little dated because of that progression in there, that little lick. So via I, me, mine, if I needed someone is like a million other songs written around the D chord. If you move your finger about, you get various little melodies, and sometimes you get various little maladies. That guitar line, or variations on it, is found on many a song, and it amazes me that people still find new permutations of the same notes. If I needed someone to love, you're the one I 
Yeah, the world is full of guitarists who've had about enough of messing around with that D chord. But, <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, that part of it doesn't bother me because I like the guitar sound so much. Oh, yeah. Actually, it's a really gorgeous sound. Is that a 12 string? I think that might be a 12 string. Either that or it's double tracked. Maybe you know. I don't. His 12 string period, I think, was Hard Day's Night, but that isn't to say that he didn't use it beyond that. Anyway, it's a really chimey kind of double tracked uh, kind of sound. So it really dominates the sound of the record in, a, I think, a pleasant way. This was on Yesterday and Today, which was an album for Americans. <laughs> <laughs> it's an album and for so, Americans. Yeah. 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 And so uh, I got to know it quite well in my first Big Beatles phase. And again, I never thought of it as anything but a Beatles song. I mean, I knew it was a George song, but it didn't strike me as out of place. These kinds of songs I accepted without much question as part of the Beatles canon. We're going to get to the stuff that confused me as a young lad. (laughs) None of this really did. This is, yeah. yeah. Well, that playing around on the D chord is interesting because I'm not a terribly good guitar player, but I did take lessons when I was younger and all I wanted to play was Beatles songs. And one of the first things I learned was Woman from Double Fantasy. Uh And that plays around on the D chord as well. It does indeed, yeah. (laughs) Um, Very simply, you know, because... Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. But yeah, if I needed someone, I mean, you get so much in here that the studio chatter when they were trying to get down the three-part harmony is just priceless. And, you know, that three-part harmony pops up in Yellow Submarine movie to the point where they include it on the song track. This predates his Indian stuff, but that there's such an interesting, vaguely Indian rhythmic structure with that you've got time to rectify all the things that you should it's just really interesting beautiful structure to that and and i don't know i think it's one of his more sophisticated songs although it does to me sound a little dated just because of that you know birdsy sort of you know it does sound very birdsy to me yeah that's right that's the 12 string vibe that i'm picking up there the kind of bird's equality. Yeah, so you're probably right about that. Early fame uh, band dynamics. I, I plucked this quote out, which I thought was interesting, which I think was from I Me Mine. Uh, George says, quote, I helped out on a lot of arrangements. What Paul would do if he'd written a song, he'd learn all the parts for Paul and then come into the studio and say, do this. Mm-hmm. He'd never give you the opportunity to come out with something. So I think Rubber Soul in a lot of ways marks the end of the Beatles as a four-person group dynamic in the studio. Not hard and fast, but just generally speaking. Because by the time you hit Revolver, they're starting to grow up. They're starting to learn what they want. I'm sure that this dynamic you're describing was annoying for George, but in Paul's defense, 
Paul was developing as a songwriter and as a very accomplished arranger. And a lot of Paul's songs, you know, the arrangement and the song are kind of interwoven. Right. So I could see Paul coming in and being like, no, you really have to play this for this <laughs> to work, right. you know? Right. Like with Badfinger. I think he wrote on the box when he sent that song to Badfinger. Yes. Play it like this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, but you yeah. know, it's If you so, want to hit, boys. <laughs> it's so yeah. funny, Chris. The more I learn, and I listen, I listen to a lot of Beatle content. I read a lot of Beatle content. It's a big part of my life. The more I learn about them as a band, the more I understand that there was no single reason for the breakup. Oh, like sure. they, they yeah. simply grew up. Yeah. They simply turned into people. You know, they were kids. They met when they were whatever. George was what, 14 something? Yeah. You know, you, you knew people when you were 14, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a chapter of your life. Imagining, imagine that chapter becoming a societal phenomenon. People grow up, they grow apart, they grow differently. They're not going to always be together, you know? It's yeah. And and so when I hear things like that what Paul was saying, like what you're saying actually is like, "Hey, Paul, listen, Paul could hear this stuff in his head." He he was that's just what his path was, you know? And it's unfortunate that it stepped on some of the people around him on occasion. But you know what? It's fair that it did because that was Paul. That was Paul's path. It's it's just, you know, you want to look for a blame or a scapegoat or something. It's like, no, this thing had a shelf life and it lived it, you know? Yeah, I think that's right. It also seems to me, and we're going to get more into George's reaction to fame. Yeah. But it looks as if, I'm just playing armchair psychologist here, but it looks as if John and George were traumatized by the Beatle experience. And I don't throw the word around lightly. But I don't think Ringo or Paul were. No, Ringo was blacked out drunk and Paul drank. <laughs> was thriving on it. Yeah. So George and John were having a really troubled relationship to you know, superstardom. I think they liked the act of playing on stage. And it's evident in the fact that the first thing post Beatles is a bunch of live concerts from George and John and not Paul. But... Yeah, for Paul, it meant something different. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's... <laughs> well, especially everything changes, and we're entering into the revolver phase, but everything changes in 66 when the Indian stuff kicks into high gear. We're not quite hitting it yet, but the first track, the opening track on revolver is a George song. That's huge. And that's the song Taxman, via I, Me, Mine. Taxman was when I first realized that even though we had started earning money, we were actually giving most of it away in taxes. It was and still is typical. Why should this be so? Are we being punished for something we had forgotten to do? Oh, are we penalizing success? <laughs> <laughs> you know. Should 5% appear too small? Now, the thing about the 5% is he's referring to a 95% tax rate on the very wealthiest people in England at the time. Yeah. And what nobody mentions is it's 95% on the last dollar. It's the top bracket, right? It wasn't, they weren't literally taking 95% of his money. They were taking 95% <laughs> beyond a certain point. I know that's a really high tax rate, but he was still a millionaire. <laughs> Shut the fuck up about the taxes. <laughs> Be thankful I don't take it all. Let me tell you one for you, 
Again, it's another aggro George tune, and they yeah. uh, they almost are universally aggressive. <laughs> even the love songs are aggressive. Yeah, even the Indian-influenced songs. So Taxman is incredible. It's an incredible record. And Revolver was the first of several experiences I had with the Beatles where I just thought this music was pretty creepy at times. Really? I thought the White Album was creepy. Yeah. I mean, look, I, Long, Long, Long is creepy. And you know, Revolution some... <laughs> 9 is creepy. Yeah. And even Honey Pie, as like the fact that that weird ghostly throwback is on there was vaguely creepy. And the opening of Revolver with Taxman coming in with, <laughs> with the tape manipulation stuff and the, you know, one, two, you know, three. it's really creepy pretty weird and then we come in with this angry song about you know the tax man who seems to be i get that it's sort of a song about you know taxes but it's also about again about authority figures right it's about someone controlling your life he name checks he says uh-oh mr wilson and then mr heath i guess those were prominent political figures and it's funny when <laughs> george went out on his live in japan tour his last live set in 92 he played taxman live and updated the political figures that he targeted i forget who the first one was but the other one was uh oh mr bush uh, which is interesting <laughs> good <laughs> i know he's you know listen bush i think, wasn't known for being the world's most aggressive taxman but no uh, he was not no <laughs> um he i don't know george had that about him you know and i i say this out of love but he was kind of an asshole but not in an unrealistic way. And I don't I don't say that even as a bad thing, but I think that he was very plain spoken, you know. He had very clear terms of what he felt was fur, you know, I'm gonna say in George speak, fur and unfur. Um but you know, that comes down to a lot of things. Like he hated school, for example. Yes. He felt like, why do I have to go here? Like what what is the point of that? He felt like it was a prison or something that he just and or job. He hated the concept of job. I think he was an apprentice electrician for a minute. And he was mm -hmm. like, well, fuck this. Yeah. I'm not doing that. Now, whether you believe that that's karma or that's George, you know, reacting to something like that from his religion or whatever, I don't know what it was. But he was kind of an a-hole when it come to a lot of stuff. And I mean, I could imagine that he would look at the taxes leaving his pocket and going, well, what the fuck is this about? And I would say to George, well, that's. That's for the free healthcare. Roads. <laughs> and roads. And Police. Things. <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah, it's a wonderful record. And famously, McCartney ended up playing the guitar solo on it. Mm. I guess there was a bit of tension in the studio about that, huh? My understanding is that Paul kind of took over at some point. Like, no, here's how you play it. And <laughs> <laughs> it's worth noting that <laughs> not, not only... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, George took that pretty hard, I believe. Uh, our kid, our kid, our sweet kid. <laughs> and not only that, but it's also worth noting, as long as we're on the topic, that there were outtakes, unused solos on the multi-track. I guess they 
snipped some of that out and used it as the backwards guitar solo on Tomorrow Never Knows. Oh, interesting. So I didn't Paul know that. kind of plays a solo on Tomorrow Never Knows, but it's actually a backwards Taxman outtake. I'll tell you this, that solo he plays on this track is fire. Like it is yeah. Yeah. maybe his finest guitar moment in the Beatles. Like it's really stupid good. And he... I think he described it as trying to play something that sounded vaguely Indian for George. Mm, I hadn't considered that. Because it, it has a little bit of that. You know, it's it, it's sort of weird and goes into unexpected Maybe the, the mode that he's in, yeah. <laughs> when it sort of descends very, very quickly. Kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the song has an amazing, creepy wrap-up with the, you're working for no one but me. It's just so... It's George, so it's George kind of being a dick. <laughs> so that brings us to Love You Too, uh, spelled T-O. I never quite figured out what that meant. Can I ask you a question? Chris, when mm-hmm. you heard Revolver for the first time, mm-hmm. what, did, what did you make of Love You Too? I'm talking first impressions. Okay, so I'd already heard Sgt. Pepper. Oh, okay. I'd already heard Within You, Without You. You, The load was already blown at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Not exactly, because again, I listened to it as, this is like a song by some other artist showed up on this album, which Mm. is how I felt about Within You, Without You as well. So it was mystifying to me that there were these Indian tunes. Just made no sense to me. Yeah. And then, yeah, it's got the inscrutable title. I don't know if he's ever spoken about that title. And then the lyrics are... They say make love all day, but then the lyrics are actually pretty dark. You don't get time to hang a sign on me. Yeah. That's some Bob Dylan. You know, that's some, <laughs> some mid-60s Dylan-tude right there. Yeah. Love me while you can before I'm a dead man. Right. There's people standing around who'll screw, screw you in the ground. Screw you in the ground. It's an awesome line. Badass. So it's a pretty dark and another rather grumpy song, except for the make make love all day, make love singing songs. People will fuck you. So make love. It's it's you know it's got a direction. Oh my god, I um, really love this song on Revolver as a as a lad. I really enjoyed it. It didn't feel. I think that says something good about you, man. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I do, I do, because well, I just was kind of not open-minded enough. But what Within You Without You was one I didn't like, but this one I liked, because, and I think it's the tooth, and maybe that's what I'm responding to about George music. It's what I respond to about a lot of music, is when, when there's a bit of a bite to it, when there's a bit of a tooth on it. And this one has that tooth, you know, like you said, it's, an, it's an, a, another aggressive song. And I don't know what he's raging at exactly. I mean, that's why I say he has a chip on his shoulder just through circumstance from being in the position that he's in. But all, almost all of his songs, without fail, have some kind of sarcastic, angry, vaguely angry thing happening. In them. Maybe in a way, the juxtaposition makes perfect sense, right? I mean, he's trying to find a way to deal with these feelings, and he's doing it by approaching Eastern religious concepts. Time to hang a sign on me. 
in I Me Mine, he writes, Love You Too was one of the first, well, interesting, he says, one of the, one of the first tunes I wrote for sitar. Norwegian Wood was an accident as far as the sitar part was concerned, but this was the first song where I consciously tried to use the sitar and tabla on a basic track. I overdubbed the guitars and vocals later, and I think that that's why I like this over Within You Without You be, uh, as a kid. My opinion has grown, but mm. um, I like that there's guitars <laughs> on this track. You know, it still kind of feels like a rock song, a little, mm, you know, right? as opposed right. to Within You Without You, which is very distinct. It almost feels like classical music. It's doesn't... almost classical music. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. But it's interesting. So that line, that quote I just read from I Me Mine, was received very poorly by a very much still alive John Lennon in 1980 when he read that in I Me Mine. And it sparked the very last um, feud between John Lennon and another former Beatle, um, where John felt that George was downplaying Norwegian Wood to prop up his own music, saying that, no, Norwegian Wood was the first Western's pop song to have a sitar on it. That's important. Yeah, it is important. He took umbrage with the fact that George kind of dismisses it and says, well, that was just me fucking around. It's like, well, no. That wasn't, that was something important. Yeah. Norwegian Wood also is at least partially in Mixolydian mode, which with the sitar would tend to sound Indian. Right. Actually. I mean, in that context, it would tend to sound somewhat Indian. So it's not just that there's a sitar slapped on there. It's, it's kind of in the music too. Yeah. A little bit. And that's John. And you know? Yeah. Lennon claimed that he did that purposefully, you know. Uh -huh. Hey, I did that purposefully. So anyway, that um, the song all those years ago was originally written as a a John Lennon kind of how do you sleep um, that was reworked after he died to, to be a tribute. But that was the last great <laughs> Lennon feud before, before his death, which is interesting. So that all revolves around the, the, the sitar. And I didn't hear inner light till much, much later. Of course we'll get to it, but I didn't know what in the world these songs were doing on these albums. And I would see that they were George songs, but then George had Taxman. And as we'll discuss in a moment, I want to tell you, and those sound perfectly like they would fit on Revolver and like Beatles songs. So. Well, his mind was starting to drift elsewhere. You know, I yeah. mean, it's around this time he, he discovers that religion, he discovers that music and yeah. starts losing interest in being a pop star. We have a, another example too of John and George being in kind of the same place a little bit here, as with Norwegian Wood, because Tomorrow Never Knows, of course, uses sitar and has a droney Indian sort of feel to it. It's as if they're both kind of drawing on Indian music to some extent at the time. Well, there's a friendship that blossoms in a deeper way around this time, around the revolver time between John and George. Acid really played a role in that where John and George dropped acid together for the first time. They had never taken it before, but when they took it together, along with their wives, it bonded them in a really intense way. And Revolver sees the first Beatles walkout. That's why I say after Rubber Soul, things change, because <laughs> it would have been unheard of to have a Beatles walkout up until Revolver, but McCartney walked out of the session for i think it's she said she said okay and george and john finished the track and i think mccartney was jealous uh mccartney was a, a famously delayed acid taker uh-huh but john and george i think had that little bit of a vaguely kind of hip 
swinger kind of quality to them in that time. And so you do see a bonding there, which is makes it, it just makes it all the more curious that Lennon simply stops showing up for George sessions at a certain point. Mm. I mean, it's just disrespectful at a certain point, but you, you wonder what drove those two apart. And it's just, I don't know, it's interpersonal dynamics. There's different times in your life where different people are closer to you than others. I get that. I don't know. They seem to be kind of bonding here. And whether that was a McCartney, whether their lack of collaboration was a purposeful McCartney, no, 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 that guy's mine kind of thing, a jealous thing or not, I don't know. But we do know that there was a joining here. Well, their friendship survived the breakup of the Beatles to a greater extent than Paul's and John's. I mean, George is still playing on John's stuff sometimes, at least on Imagine. He plays. <laughs> Which is so funny because <laughs> Lennon just declines to contribute to George stuff. And, you know, it's just, I don't know. It seems yeah. there's a big, very big brothery relationship there, especially in those early Beatle years. You hear like him talking to John, like, oh, yeah, that fucking square McCartney, huh? And it's just like, well, it seems like he's forever trying to catch up and be one of them, you know? Getting back to Love You Too, this is via a book called Beatles Orientalis. Quote, one cannot emphasize how absolutely unprecedented this piece is in the history of popular music. For the first time, Asian music was not parodied, utilizing familiar stereotypes and misconceptions, but rather transferred in total into a new environment with sympathy and rare understanding. And that rare understanding is the key there, because this Indian stuff hit George on a very intense level. Well, I think now might be a good time to address this topic, at least for the first time, of possibly several. I've noticed that, okay, so what what the author there is referring to, I guess, is Orientalism, where Orientalism, it means a lot of things, but in music in particular, it refers to the travelogue pieces of Western composers in the late Romantic era and into the modern era. They would call them travelogue pieces because these composers would go to some exotic, quote unquote, exotic land, steal the the cool ideas and come back (laughs) and make these pieces that were really full of caricatures and stereotypes and the most superficial gloss on the material. And it came to be seen eventually as rather offensive to do this, that it was kind of a racist music in a way to, to do this. Now, you can debate how far one ought to take that, but- This notion that there's something wrong with cultural appropriation, I said it, there I said it, it doesn't seem to have stuck to George Harrison the way it has to others. So Paul Simon got a bit of flack for Graceland. Yeah. And Talking Heads got a little flack for some of the African stuff that they imported on Fear of Music and Remain in Light. And I think Peter Gabriel even did. But yeah, for some reason, this... Criticism never stuck to George, and I think it's, or it's never, I've never even heard it applied to George. I've never heard him referred to as a cultural appropriator or an Orientalist because of his use in this music. I think it's precisely because he didn't traffic in caricatures and stereotypes and actually engaged with the philosophy of the Indian musicians, actually worked with Indian musicians, really got to know the instrumentation and the musical styles. It's it's a deeper investment than just finding nifty, shiny, sonic objects. And more so, so sincere. Yeah. It's not like 
Paul Simon. And, and I'm, I'm not one to. I'm point. not saying Paul Simon did anything wrong, and no. I like Graceland. I'm just saying he took flack, and George Harrison never did. That's the only thing I'm saying. Yeah, because I feel like there's a walk the walk and talk the talk thing there. I'm not falling down on any particular line, especially about Paul Simon, because I feel like Graceland. I mean, he had. I don't know. That's a whole other argument. But yeah, George, it's a beautiful album. Yeah, for George, it was a lifestyle. Like for him, he felt like he had. It was a philosophy. It was spiritual. Yeah, he, so. he lived it. Truly yeah. lived it. And he was doing a lot to bring Indian music to the forefront of Anglo-American culture. So we'll get to it. But when I was watching Wonderwall yesterday, you watched uh, Wonderwall. Holy yeah. shit! I, I can't wait to hear about this. It was better than Help. <laughs> oh, Chris, you need to stop pooping on Help. I got to tell you this: you got to stop pooping on Help. Well, anyway, I mean, the thought that went through my head though is like this movie is '68, and I'm thinking there's all this, you know, he's he's using all this Indian music in it. And when the movie starts, the Indian music starts, and it just seems perfectly. Well, of course, it's 1968 psychedelia. And then you realize George Harrison's probably pretty much single-handedly responsible for the fact that we associate Indian instruments and music with psychedelia, mm. right? Yeah. Everybody else jumped on after he did it. It became part of the sound of that music to the point, I think we covered this on Red Rose Speedway, to the point that by the early 70s, you would just sometimes throw a sitar on a track because it was just a cool sound now. <laughs> the moon which, boots. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I'm thinking specifically about tragedy. I know. With the with the yeah, with the with the sitar part. I think we mentioned the Delphonics didn't I blow your mind this time, which has a sitar on it, and it's got nothing to do with anything Indian. Yeah. It's just an instrument you can have on your record as of nineteen seventy one or seventy two, whatever that song came out. So he did something huge with that. Not not just selling the public. He sold the Beatles on it. He sold John and Paul. Yeah. You can sell Ringo pretty much anything, but he sold <laughs> he sold John and Paul on it to the point where they were open minded about the Maharishi. You know, that was that that's yeah. a George trip. Yeah. He affected a lot of the trajectory of that band at this time, you know? I mean, if not for George, do you get the White Album? Probably not, because if not for George, they don't go to Rishikesh, they don't write 400 songs, and they don't come back with all this glut of material. I mean, that's George. I mean, that's a huge thing. And so it, that I find to be the most interesting thing about this period is that, yeah, he may have been stuck between two mountains, but they listened to him. They really did in this regard. And I think Lennon was at the place where Lennon was searching for something. And George seemed to have found the answer for himself. And so you see a lot of George and John closeness at this time because it's in an era before Yoko. And Yoko gave John the other half. Yoko gave John, okay, you've been searching for something. Here I am. But until that point, I think John was saying, John was looking at George, and this is supposition, but it's supposition after having learned a lot about their lives. John looks at George and goes, well, this guy seems to have figured it out, so I better latch on to that. And John goes full, you know, whole hog into the yeah. Indian stuff. And he abandons it. He forsakes it very quickly. But he does that by supplementing it with Yoko. Right. And so, I, you know... And that's where you get a song like Not Guilty, where George just sort of says, like, hey, this is, I mean, we're not at Not Guilty, but George says, hey, like, look, 
I'm not, this isn't my fault. Like, whatever you feel about the Maharishi, it's nothing I did. Yeah, it's nothing to do with me. Yeah. I want to tell you Pausing the Indian stuff for a moment, we'll go on to I Want to Tell You, which is the last of the George tracks on Revolver. And Revolver is interesting because it has the, I think, proportionately the most George songs to John Paul songs of any Beatle recording. He got three on that one. That's right. Yeah, I'm not, it's a bit of a mystery too. Yeah, I mean, he's just writing a lot. But um, yeah. at that time, via I Me Mine, he says, I want to tell you is about the avalanche of thoughts that are so hard to write down or say or transmit. If I were to rewrite the bridge section now, however, I would have to say, although I seem to act unkind, it isn't me, it is my mind. That is confusing things. The mind is the thing that hops about telling you to do this and that when what we need is to lose or forget the mind, a passing thought. So straight up mindfulness meditation there. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I struggle with meditation myself. I've heard oh, it's it des- hard. I've heard it described as mm-hmm. um, looking at your own thoughts as a road that cars are traveling on. And the goal is to take yourself out of the car and put yourself on the side of the road watching the it's cars. It's extremely hard to do. Sam Harris has this great quote about meditation. He says, explaining it to someone, it's a bit like the instructions for tightrope walking. Step onto the rope, try not to fall. <laughs> but it's not that easy. Yeah, sit down, pay attention to the breath, and don't get carried away with your thoughts. And that's akin to staying on the tightrope, you know. There's a great quote about mindfulness meditation that says, the mind that is aware that it is angry, ceases in that moment to be angry. So when you stop identifying with the anger and simply see the anger, you're not in that anger anymore. And substitute any emotion you want there. Yeah, he's right. That would be a a more Vipassana way to to put the lyric. But the lyric is what it is. It's a solid song. It it fits really nicely uh, near... Got to Get You Into My Life. Those two songs complement each other really well on the album. It's got the famous wrong note. I believe that wrong note is a, an add flat six. The point is he adds a note on top of a normal chord that's a dissonant note. And it's the ding, 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 ding part that <laughs> sounds a little wrong. It's just a weird note that he threw in there. And that's interesting, too, that he wanted to experiment with a dissonance like that. It sounds like on Penny Lane with the fireman bell mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, it's beautiful. It, it fits, like you said, more, more easily into the track listing of Revolver as opposed to Love You Too, which is 
very distinct sounding. But well, it helps to make for such a good energetic final push on Revolver too. It's one of the songs, yeah. up tempo songs you get toward the end there. Yeah. Yeah. And so with that, George starts to lose interest in being a pop star. I think he described the Sgt. Pepper sessions as John and Paul's ego running away with themselves. You get a lot less George involvement on songs starting in Sgt. Pepper. He's still there. I mean, there's some really, actually, I was looking at them today, some really fun photographs of him in the studio playing some odd instruments. And his influence on the Sgt. Pepper period is felt through everything actually you know all the weird sounds and things i mean everything is kind of vaguely indian while not quite being indian sounding but the george influence is felt but not quite heard the one song you get on sergeant pepper from george is extremely indian called within you without you and this one was recorded march 15th and 22nd 1967 in studio 2 abbey road and it was also recorded on April 3rd and 4th in the same studio, mixed to mono and stereo on April 4th. George is featured on vocal, sitar, and tambura. And additional instruments include the dilruba, the swaramandala, which can also be heard on Strawberry Fields Forever. That's the weird sort of... Ah, yes. Whatever, that thing. You see it in the video. Zither, yeah. Right. Uh, Tabla, eight violins, and three cellos. The recording began with the Indian section on March 15th as a purely instrumental performance. George Martin had some experience recording Indian instruments on a Peter Sellers project, of all things. So brought with him some experience on that front. All the Indian musicians were seated on rugs in Studio 2, burning incense, George sang the melodies of the song to the Indian musicians using some techniques he picked up from Ravi Shankar, and the track was cut that day. George Martin took the recording and wrote a score to it for the Western musicians. The Western section was cut on April 3rd. George Martin wrote that score in like a week, which is amazing. It's his job. Uh, and then they married the Indian section and the Western section together, and George laid down his vocal. The instrumental was then sped up a bit, changing the key from C to C sharp, and the laughter at the end of the track was from stock tape found in Abbey Road and was referred by George as, quote, as a release after five minutes of sad music, <laughs> as well as keeping with the theme of an audience watching Sgt. Pepper's band. Now, I mentioned this earlier, around this time, George had began losing interest in guitar, instead focusing on applying Indian theory to pop music and writing songs primarily on the keyboard. George explains, quote, my heart was in India. That was a big thing for me. That happened in 66. After that, everything else seemed like hard work. It was a job, like doing something I really didn't want to do. I was losing interest in being fab. Too late, but 
Within You Without You was a skip track for me. I did not understand it. It seemed very slow, very sad. I didn't get it. Very long. Long. What were your impressions of Within You Without You as a kid? Yeah, the same. And for me, about the same as as Love You Too, where I just didn't know what it meant. I didn't know how to how to sing along with it exactly. <laughs> and... Uh, so, yeah, it was kind of a skip. It wasn't a skip. I didn't skip it because it was an LP. <laughs> so you put it down, at the, needle down at the beginning. Of, <laughs> she didn't necessarily pay attention to that track. And so over the years, it became uh, among my favorite Beatles songs, meaning, I don't know, top 50. <laughs> but still, it, it eventually became a favorite of mine. Basically, the more I learned about music, the more appealing that song became. People often talk about it having a section in 5-4. I would call it 5-8 because the beat's a bit too fast to be a quarter note. So it's like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, like that, that tempo, which I would call a 5-8. But a 5-8 is a, an unusual thing, especially in the 60s, to find on a pop album. It's just a little unusual in mid-60s rock to hear a time signature like that. You don't hear a lot of 5 or seven. The Beatles didn't do a ton of that kind of thing either. And prog rock, which is where that stuff really starts happening, doesn't really get up and running for a few more years yet. So, hey, call it proto-prog, that 5-8 section. And to me, as I grew musically over the years and lived with that song, I began to hear it as just the most extraordinary record. He's using these same musicians, the Asian music circle, uh, Indian musicians who lived in London. So they're the same musicians who worked on Love You Too. And the sound of that ensemble with orchestration for the small string ensemble, it's just such a powerful mixture there. It's a really powerful sound that they got. And this song has this incredible long flowing melody. It's no wonder that if you're a kid who's focused on, on lovely Rita, you know, (laughs) you want to hear fixing a hole you know maybe you don't have time for that but as i matured i really came to see this as one of the beatles great achievements this song yeah uh, same i was i think bored by it as a kid and then have grown to just really love it especially the 
2017 remaster where you really hear stuff crystal clear. It's just really, really beautiful track. Um, via I Me Mind, George said, that was written after I had gotten into meditation. We had entered into the All You Need Is Love consciousness after the LSD period. The song was written at Klaus Vormann's house in Hampstead, London, one night after dinner. I was playing a pedal harmonium in the house when the song came to me. The tune came first, then the sentence, we were talking. I finished the words later. This was during the Sgt. Pepper period, and after I had been taking sitar lessons with Ravi Shankar for some time, so I was getting a bit better on the instrument. I was continually playing Indian music lessons, the melodies of which are called sargams, which are the bases of the different ragas. That's why during this time I couldn't help writing tunes like this, which are based around unusual scales. Mm. The best part of it for me was the instrumental solo in the middle, which is in the 5-4 time. The first of the strange rhythm cycles that I caught on to. 1-2-1-2-3-1-2-1-2-3. You know, again, as a kid, Love You 2 grabbed me more because there was like guitar on it mm. and more of a, a pronounced toothy sort of vocal and this one is a little soft and kind of atmospheric but in the context of sergeant pepper really feels like somebody just lit a stick of incense in the middle of the album yeah and is extraordinarily atmospheric just as much as the title track or anything like that yeah the lyrics are not so aggro this time there's a lot more (laughs) there's a lot (laughs) more sadness and a lot more insight right it really does it's not just everything sucks so make love all day it's you know it's a much deeper idea than that now i always took the title to mean i always took it as within you without you meaning uh without in its normal usage because without doesn't mean outside of we never use it that way Right. So I didn't take the song to mean inside of you and outside of you. I took it to mean inside of you and in your absence. Right. And the line before it, and to see you're really only very small. And life flows on within you and without you. Without you. Yeah. I was thinking about that on a run today. It's funny. This song does not make me want to break out into a sprint. <laughs> Makes you want to... Sit cross-legged and <laughs> say ohm. <laughs> like like old brown shoe makes me want to break out into a sprint. This song is just like I was I don't know, I was tripping out. I was thinking about a lot of different things, but everything you just said was the thought I dwelled on ah. today, which was the within you and then without as in the absence yeah. of. Yeah. It, it's gonna happen with you and without you. Right. Not within you, within, but with and without yeah. you. I mean it's That's right, yeah. Something he plays with actually on Old Brown Shoe and the in the opposites or you know that that sort of thing, but yeah, it's um it's a song that really grew on me. I still I don't know, when Anthology came out, they I think they put the instrumental on there and I don't really I don't know if I would really listen to that for fun because the for me the appeal of this song is George's lyric, mm-hmm. which is really strong. Yeah. Really really strong. And the the long melody, yeah, it's, it's great stuff. Right. Yeah. So we're in the middle of Sergeant Pepper period, as George calls it, and I, I sort of it's it's sort of weird to actually order these songs because they're not always in the order that they were recorded in. But I'll go to the next song that was officially released. Let's call it that. So that was Blue Jay Way, 
and the song Blue Jay Way released on the Magical Mystery Tour EP is included in the film, has a wonderful sequence in that film via I Me Mine. Blue Jay Way was at a time when I'd rented a house in Los Angeles on Blue Jay Way, and I'd arrived there from England. I was waiting around for Derek and Joan Taylor, who were living around there in LA. I was very tired after the time change and the flight, and I started writing, playing a little electric organ that was in the house. So that's a theme that's going to come up I'm going to refer to later. It had gotten foggy, and they couldn't find the house for some time. The mood is also slightly Indian. Derek Taylor is also slightly Welsh, which is really funny. It's <laughs> a very, very good, very good quote. So he's writing songs not on guitar at this point. He's writing them on a keyboard. And he, he is a self-proclaimed not keyboard player. Sure. But that's how he's writing songs right now, which I find really interesting and changes the tone of his music. Well, and he's using especially the organ because he wants long droning things. So he wants to play long chords and weave melodies over them and just change a few notes. Yeah. So just something with sustained sounds is what he needs. Now, have you been to Blue Jay Way? I have not. I did the pilgrimage. Oh, yeah? When I first got out here, I don't know, it was a year in. It was the weekend of Beetlefest, and I was missing the fact that I wasn't at Beetlefest. So I decided to drive around and see a bunch of Beetle things, and I did the drive. And no wonder Derek couldn't find the house. It's, <laughs> it's, it's really deep in the Hollywood Hills, which is to say a lot of windy, steep roads that are very hard to navigate. And I could imagine that whatever Derek Taylor was on or drinking that night made it probably pretty hard to find his way there. Um, Derek Taylor, for people who don't know, was the Beatles press officer who left in the mid sixties to go be the press officer for the beach boys. And then came back to the Beatles in the latter half of the sixties to work for Apple. But the Beatles maintained a good relationship with Derek. Things were getting a little too weird with those beach boys. That <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, there was a fog upon LA. <laughs> So here's another creepy Beatles song. This definitely struck me as creepy as hell when I first heard it. Yeah, I did a, a podcast recently, and we were talking about Magical Mystery Tour. The show was about movies, um, and I elected to subject them to Magical Mystery Tour. And the Magical Mystery Tour um, Blue Jay Way segment is really creepy, and it features a really weird moment where a shirtless Mal Evans has written on him in what I can only assume is mascara, says Magical Mystery Boy. Hmm. And it looks like a fucking snuff film or something. Like, it looks <laughs> really Because John Lennon is on this, like, I don't know what you call him, like a rocking horse or something. It's really weird. 
<laughs> but it's a great moment in the film and, and, and does continue to give us a variety of songs. Because one of the things that I love about Beatle music is the variety you get in every album. You get all this different kind of sounding stuff. And you can get an album with a song like this badass rocker like I Am The Walrus. And you can get this show tuny your mother should know. And you also get this very moody Blue Jay way. That's why I think Magical Mystery Tour is my favorite Beatles recorded effort if I had to pick one. You mean including the side B with all the singles? Or you just mean side A? Not... The no, EP. I mean I mean mainly mainly side A, the EP. Yeah, it crams a lot in in a very short space of time. Yes, but I don't know. I love this. It's the last gasp of Beatles psychedelia mm-hmm. to any meaningful degree. Well, Revolution Nine. Well, <laughs> but I know what you mean. That like you know Technicolor nineteen sixty seven particular brand of right. psychedelia for sure. Yeah, I don't place Revolution Nine in psychedelia. I, I place Revolution Nine as like um, I don't know. Philip Glass or something, like some art thing. Hmm. I don't know. I think of it as something he did on acid, which makes it psychedelia as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm just being prejudiced and I'm thinking of sitars as sounding psychedelic, and that's not the case. But I think White Album's a very psychedelic album, actually. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Abbey Road, not so much, but something like Honey Pie. Is, that's, I mean, that's primo psychedelic you know the weird throwback retro thing So a big figure in George's life around this time was Western Indian musician named John Barham, who you don't really hear about a lot in the annals of Beatles historiography. But John Barham recalls, quote, I remember playing some solo piano to George, who was fascinated by my playing ragas on the piano. George played sitar to me, and we also tried combining sitar and piano. One of George's favorite ragas was Raga Marwa, which will come up later in our album discussions. When we were first introduced to Ravi, I had just composed a piano piece based on this raga. George liked it a lot and played a recording of it to John Lennon, who also liked it. George also told me that his song Blue Jay Way was inspired by this raga. And that's interesting to me for a lot of reasons, because ragas are basically Indian, I don't know what you call them, movements, like classical movements. Yeah, and it's kind of like a scale mode, too. Uh, it's like a melodic mode. Yeah. But I love that John Lennon took to it. Mm. And I think that that goes to what we were talking about, about John looking for a, I don't know, some sort of meaning or something. But it's interesting that George wasn't the only one that kind of took to it. And you hear that a lot in Beatles stories where, you know, Ringo will call it, oh, little Indian tricks or something. They almost talk about them like they would talk about some solo with a seventh chord, and, you know, whatever classic rock song, you know, they, they think of them as tricks. They yeah. think of them as little musical, interesting um, amusements, while Indian musicians think of these songs less as songs and more as spiritual awakening. You know, they, they treat them with almost religious fervor. 
Mm-hmm. Interesting that Blue Jay Way was attached to that raga in that way. Via Simon Lang's While My Guitar Gently Weeps, the series of notes George casts around, quote, there's a fog upon LA, imposes part of the scale from Raga Marwa onto a basic C major chord. He uses notes that are dissonant in the C major setting, E flat and F sharp, pivoting them around a C diminished chord. So I really didn't know anything about that. I was fooling around with that at the piano, actually, while we were taking a break a little while ago, because I saw your quote here yeah. from Simon Lang. And yeah, the, it, for those interested in such things, it ends up sounding like Lydian mode, the, the F sharp. If you're playing a C major chord and you're adding a lot of F sharps to it, that's going to sound like Lydian mode. The E flat, though, is funky because that takes you sort of into C minor. So it's kind of a major minor-y feel, mm. which is a fancy way of saying it's a bit of a blue note. Most of the song ends up feeling as if it's in C Lydian, but that E flat is a weird melodic bit there. And he's right about the C diminished chord kind of resolving up to C major. Anyway, it's a really interesting song. It really is. Melodically, that's really fun to listen to. And it's another of these songs that he's doing something really quite different for for mid-60s pop music. Yeah, and I, I love the George Martin orchestration treatment on it too, the cellos. I mean, it sounds a little mm. dated because George Martin was putting cellos on everything, but yeah. <laughs> there is something kind of beautiful about that. Dun, 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 dun. I, mean, I think it kind of makes the song at a certain point. Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting that George Martin had that experience with Indian musicians. Join us for part two of our extended discussion of the songs of Beatle George. See you next time.